Today's podcast is sponsored by Fire Facilities Incorporated, expert engineers, designers, and manufacturers of steel training towers, burn rooms, and mobile units that are all made in the USA. So today's guest is Aaron Fields. Aaron is a 20-year veteran of the fire service with his last 16 being uh, at Seattle Fire. He's a legacy firefighter with his father, brother, and himself all serving or have served for Seattle. The self-described OG of the Nozzle Ford program and the developer of Drilling for Function is all about engine work. To say that defines him would be a mistake. Aaron is an intelligent, well-spoken firefighter that has a great informed view on all things fire service. I had Aaron on my podcast about five or six months ago, and I was just blown away with his views on the fire service. I couldn't wait to get him back on here so we could talk about generational stuff, training, and whatever else came up. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. And do me a favor, please hit the subscribe button. And if you like the podcast, I would appreciate a review. This is going to help me keep getting great guests and delivering great content. And with that, Aaron Fields. Brother Aaron Fields, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Uh, really enjoyed talking to you last time. How you been? I'm good, thanks. How about yourself? Doing well, doing well. Um, I usually ask everybody to tell me about their department, where they fit in, but we've done that before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you work in Seattle. Um, and uh, last time we talked, I believe you were doing some training with the training division permanently, or with the new recruits. Are you still doing that? So since we talked, I've done it twice um, and I'm slated to go back in August and it's, it's uh, the new training chief is phenomenal and has just, she's frankly kicking ass and she's, she's pushed some stuff that a lot of people have been lobbying for, for years. And she's just, you know, change isn't ever come at the hand of one person. Uh, but it's it's a concerted effort successively by, you know, quite a few people. And that's the case with this. And to allow firefighters down into training to teach rookies is something new for, for my fire department. Um, and it's it's been really good. And, yeah, it's uh, they're long days. And, and, you know, it's not the schedule that we're used to. But, um the schedule isn't bad and the results are good. So call it even. Now, do you ride the rigs at all when you're down there training or? No, not when I'm in training. So I just wrapped up my training stint on Friday mm-hmm. and I go back to my normal assignment tomorrow morning. Okay. Okay. Yep. So having done so many classes now, what kind of uh, broad strokes can you paint when it comes to generational firefighters? Well, um, I think, you know, uh, I think they get a bad rap. I think our generation is behaving with, you know, that rock and roll music is going to be the death of us. (laughs) I think that there is some differences, but I don't think those differences are necessarily weaknesses. I think in many ways they're advantages. I I do think there is some cultural phenomena um, that come with 
growing up in with a powerful computer in your pocket. And I think the the social media largely has been had a negative effect on society and and interpersonal relationships and people deal with each other. What we will say though is that computers have given us the greatest access to technology and information ever. Mm-hmm. And the only time that parallels this is the advent of the printing press. Uh, and with regards to cultural impact. And I think that um, we're suffering from the same things that we've suffered from in the past when we have these major leaps is you know, whether it's the industrial revolution, the technological revolution, whatever it is, the Renaissance, these moments when we, we make this progress so rapidly that we don't give it's, it's major jumps between generations instead of small incremental growth. You know, I think we forget that, you know, the millennials have been fighting the longest war in American history. Your generation and my generation did not have not fighting this one. They are. And it's the, you know, so let's not forget that. Yeah. You know, single speed bicycles and skinny jeans, but also, you know, people that are making a career of the military in a combat era, which, you know, that's not lacking in any grit or fortitude. I don't think that any group of people have a corner on that. I do think that culturally, and I've said this a lot, which is that culturally there is a difference. And that's that um, for the last 30, maybe 50 years, we've been teaching people how to avoid difficult conversations instead of teaching them how to have them with respect to someone whose views are different. And I think social media lends itself to people screaming at each other. And it's amazing to me. There's been a lot of stuff said online. And when I'll call somebody up personally, the conversation is never quite what it is when they're just writing a diatribe without the worry of ramification. And I think that we've kind of lost that ability to conversate about things that we don't necessarily have perspective, perception, or perception isn't complete. And we, we react rather emotionally as a species. Uh, I think that the modern generation does have some tricks, which are, for someone in my age group or your age group, if you have a question ask a question. If you have a comment, make a comment, but don't make a comment in under the guise of being a question. Right. That's insulting to me. So if you have something you want to say, just say it and and do so with a certain degree of dignity and respect. And it's not going to be a problem. Right. Don't think I'm foolish enough that you can come and ask a quote unquote question when it is really just a, a statement. It's it's disingenuous and it gets in the way of adult conversations. So I think the modern generation, uh, and not to say that yours and my generation didn't suffer from it, but I think that uh, it's become much more acute of a problem because of social media. And th- this is an acceptable platform for quote unquote dialogue, which isn't dialogue, it's monologue and usually grammatically. So screwed up 
that you can't <laughs> understand what anybody's saying, right? And it and so uh, I don't really see a problem. I do as many people do hands-on trades as they used to when we came in or even before us. No, but that's the case with we've exported all of our production. So mm-hmm. what opportunity do people have to do that? Right. And how will we expect someone that hasn't done any construction to teach their kid to do construction? Right. It's just so I think in order to to translate these two cultures and these two cultural interpretations is what I can show the new guys is how to do real research, how to annotate their bibliography so that it doesn't look like they're plagiarizing or being disingenuous. They're telling people and showing people where all of their resources are. Mm -hmm. That doesn't take away from your ability to alter things as long as you quantify that you're the one doing it. In the fire service, you know, we we have a problem with illegal behavior, which is if you plagiarize someone's material, sometimes written material, mm-hmm. you can't say it's yours. It's against the law. It's also unethical. And so if you're going to cite a source, we should be behaving like academics do and businesses do going to borrow someone's information or base something off their research you have to cite their research and that puts you in a line of continuity with the people that you learn from because no one duration right it's a refinement of other things so i think someone in our age group who has actually done a bibliography or understands what its purpose is and when we were in school if we turned in something plagiarized you didn't pass. Right. Right. Now people are plagiarizing. It's way easier and they're doing it. And the social norms with it are becoming more flexible. So unless you're in the business world or academic world in which you get sued and go to jail or you never work again. Right. right? Academics don't steal each other's material. Not, not very often and not without recourse. So I think the modern generation with their handle on technology and our generation with our handle on long-term research. I mean, I remember card catalogs. Microfish. <laughs> Microfish. Now I have how many times more than the library at Alexandria in my pocket? Yes. So I think when you bring these two things together, you have some amazing potential. The other one is, is how dare we as an older generation begrudge someone because they don't have what we have deemed are the requisite skills. And that, it comes back to this training model. People are like, well, they should know this and they should know that. They don't. Right. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to waste energy talking about what you wish they knew? Or are you going to put that energy into showing them what they need? And, and if you have objective standards, it, it takes away the subjectivity. I don't care why they don't. Mm-hmm. I want them to. And if they don't, they don't move on. And that's, I think, where we have conflict. And the other one I'll note is that um, I have noticed a, a tendency of people in our generation to tell new folks that we want someone that's gritty and in control and 
you know, you've got to have a thick skin. And if I tell you something and then tell you to shut up, you got to have a thick skin. And this is coming from somebody who got asked a question and then threw a temper tantrum. Right. Like the senior guy throwing a temper tantrum because the younger guy dare ask a question about why. Why is necessary. Mm-hmm. And if and if we weren't, if you and I weren't afforded the whys, aim on the people that instructed us. We all recognize it. Yet when, as long as it's an honest question, if a new person comes to you and asks a real question, what are they saying? I trust you. That is until you go hooly gooly on them for asking a question. Right. You know, now they don't trust you anymore. So I don't think the cultural phenomena that we see playing out over and over again, I don't think we can blame it on new folks any more than we can blame it on ourselves. Right. It's a, it's, it's cultural translation. Well, you know, to your point, it's like our generation wants to bash on the next generation because X, Y, and Z, but can you imagine how firefighters that didn't have the nice gear and the SEBAs before us, how they looked at us as we came up? Like, oh, you got gear. You've got an SEBA. You're so tough. You know? Yeah, my dad was the first class in Seattle, first or second class that had to wear masks. The really? mandatory masks. And uh, they would get cross-eyed looks when they'd jump off the rig and throw it on. You know? And... Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I I also think that there's a component of tradition that the fire service wears like a cloak, and that is some of our traditions are phenomenal, but not all traditions are phenomenal. I mean, the tradition of abusing children is a is a family tradition because what's done to you, you do. Right. Someone has to break that line. And you could say, well, that's just how my family shows each other affection. If we punch each other in the mouth, it doesn't make it right. Right? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's it, tradition. You know, all that the senior guy has to say is, well, that's tradition. And that, that absolves them of the tradition making any sense. I think everything as a profession, everything needs to be under constant surveillance and a keen eye and intervention when it's going wrong. I mean, dysfunction is a tradition. Function is a tradition. Right. And if we create these traditions that, I mean, we, we confuse in our industry, we confuse roughness with toughness, with mental toughness, right. how rough and robust and how abrasive you are is the mark of your virility in many circles within our occupation and um it's ridiculous <laughs> it's yeah. just it's ridiculous you well look at um you talk about some of these bad traditions that need to be pretty much done with if you look at the current status with everybody having a cell phone and everybody no longer afraid to report certain things uh i feel like today's fire department is kind of filtering itself because you've got one or two choices somebody's going to videotape you doing something you shouldn't be doing to another firefighter under the scrutiny of, you know, it's tradition or I'm just hazing them. And to where now they can really lose their job with some of that stuff. So I feel like right now, of course, you brought up the internet earlier and it's, it's just weaponized anonymity. That's all it is. You know, you, you, Mm -hmm. you mentioned it being, it's not a dialogue, it's a monologue. 
And I can't imagine anybody would come up to somebody's face and say half the shit they say, you know, uh, they do on the Internet. But uh, I, I just see that uh, more and more fire departments, hopefully, uh, if we haven't learned anything for some of these police departments, is that we're always in the public eye and we're almost always under kind of constant surveillance. Well, also, there's another point that we need to really discuss is that are we a profession or are we a fraternity? Ooh. Yep. I mean, familial bonds, the firehouse, brother, this, sister, that, comes from work, not just because I put a path, not because I can endure someone's abuse for a year and then I too can become one of the cool guys and do it to what was done behind me. That sounds like a fraternity. I have no interest in that. It's not professional. Now, I'm not saying we, we acid wash our culture, there are things about our indoctrination process that are, that are really awesome and they're necessary. I think, and instead of going through it one by one, here's the, here's the, uh, here's the litmus test. If you can do something to me because of our position that in any other setting, including recruit firefighter, I'd punch you in the mouth for, mm-hmm. don't do it and don't say it. Unless unless you're okay with this new guy doing the same thing to you. Right. Now, I'm not talking about work division. I'm not talking about probationary behavior. I'm not talking about any of that stuff. What I'm talking about is that this concept of I can just rookie sport, like the rookie sport, like how tough can we make it? Um, if it, in my mind, if it doesn't have to do with the job, then I really have to think about it. Right. If it is, if there's a direct correlation between the job, no problem. And in, in I mean, in some ways, you know, guys would tell you that, oh, see, he's not, he's, he's like a modern day guy. Um, you're fucking hey, right. That doesn't take away from my intensity or my, my, the way that I and what I expect from my peers. I mean, how many traditional guys would be comfortable with a modern guy telling them if they pull their cell phone out again in the rig, I'm going to flush it in the toilet. Right. Right. Because it's interfering with my job. We're going to a full alarm. And this guy that doesn't typically work with us on overtime is checking his text message. And he quotes, well, I'm a traditional. Oh, really? Is that so? You know, so I, I think we've got it. We've got it confused. And I think it comes back fundamentally to the concept we have of ourselves and what it is we do and what role in society we fit. How many times have you heard around the beanery table? Well, what they should do for us in re- reference to the public or the city because of what we do. Oh, what is it we do? Go to work. Probably don't do our main occupation on a multiple day or daily basis, uh, eat. And for a lot of our guys that say, well, what they owe us because of what we do, uh, their, their idea of a good day is watching a ball game and not doing anything related to the job, which, uh, <laughs> which means that they're probably being overpaid. Yes. Because absolutely. they're not, they're not setting up for, for, for performance and, and you know the mark of a professional end of the day 
the mark of a military guy that's professional, a sports person that's professional, is the amount of preparation because no professional athlete who is what who we always like to compare to, no military person spends more time playing than they do practicing. Right. The practice hours greatly outnumber their actual performance hours. So, you know, I you know, I and it's it's an interesting thing that we're talking about this in this format specifically. Um, there's a little irony to it, but I I can remember when we first started the, doing the nozzle forward and these these thoughts. Anybody that's been around me for much much of a time know that this isn't new. This has always been my general disposition, and I do think it's interesting that when I first started, I was told by more than one person that um, I was I was a pariah, that I wasn't supposed to say these kinds of things, that how dare you question what it is we're doing. These are all direct quotes mm-hmm. um, that, you know, you're trying to take away everything that's good about the fire. I mean, I've heard, heard it all. Right. And, um, I think early on before more people had heard the full message of what I say, not just the soundbite, um, I was considered a firebrand and, and counterculture and, and all, all these things. And now that more and more people, I mean, early on, I'd, I'd even heard more than once that uh, I don't like chiefs, which is absolutely Absolutely ridiculous. That you don't, I don't like chiefs personally. I don't like chiefs. I okay. have a problem with uh, the chain of command, which is not the case. Uh, I love leadership, and leadership happens at every single level. Yes. There are good leaders at the chief level, good leaders at the company officer, all the way down to firefighters. And part of the chain of command is overlapping links, where my boss and my link overlap their conversation. In the realm that it's on his strand of the chain, that's his game, and my strand is my game. That's the way a, ch- a chain works. It's it's not a cable. It's it's this circular, linear thing. And I think that um, the reason people early on reacted was is because uh, one, I have a sense of humor, and many people don't have a sense of humor about themselves. And two, they identified with traits that I was articulating are negative not at the chief level at every level right and instead of going back and saying to their guys oh yeah you know fields he said some things that i hadn't thought of from this angle before and it made me reflect on my own personal behavior um and and they can't say that so they go back and go he doesn't like chiefs and all this nonsense and it's like some of my best friends are chiefs and good leadership is good leadership. I think the Marine Corps in warfighting does a phenomenal job of defining what it is they expect out of a Marine, out of every Marine, not, not a particular rank. And I think the fire service would be good to make that document part of the required reading. I'm not a hoorah guy right. uh, at all, but that document is devoid of hoorah relevant today as it was in 1976 or whenever or whatever it was written 
And it lays out the general operating guidelines, including true mission statements for what the Marines do and what they expect from their people and what the expectation is. And it's, I've read it a multiple times. And the first time I read it, it was like, yeah, okay, standard military issue. And then I started reading it more and more. And I was struck with how articulate the document is and how on first read, it makes sense. On third read, it makes more sense. And you see the subtext. And um, so anyway, I, it's just interesting that we're talking about this. And over the course of 12 years of doing the nozzle forward, I think that the public opinion of who I am and what I do has, has changed and, and changed in a good way. Right. Uh, but for the record, it's who I've always been. It's well, just people have heard the message completely. Now you're, so you, you, you come across, at least to me, we've, we've talked a few times now as very progressive uh, and very open to new things. You're not just like stuck in being the old salty fireman. This is how we did it. This is how we're going to do it. But let me ask you this, if, if this isn't part of it, though. So and you, you just mentioned you ask a lot of questions and you were kind of pissing people off when you came on just because you were asking questions or, or not subscribing either way. So you're almost 50 or 50 and you've, 50. and you've been on 20 years, which means you started with Seattle at 30? No, I started somewhere else at 30, worked there for about six years and came to Seattle. So you, you're, you're more adult, more grown up. Uh, I mean, when I came in, I was mid twenties, I think. So I mean, mm-hmm. I was, I was a child <laughs> comparatively and uh, to where I am now. And I pretty much did and said whatever anybody told me at that time, because I didn't know I had a voice, you know, it took me years to realize, Hey, I can actually speak out and say, this isn't right. Or that isn't right. Do you think coming into the fire service at 30 made that difference? Or do you think if you joined at 19, it had been Absolutely the same thing? No, at 19, it would have been, a, it would have been a terrible thing. <laughs> No, no, no. In fact, I think that, um, you know, again, unpopular, everybody wants to see how young it is they can get hired. Um, That's not great. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you know bitter if you don't know sweet? Right. Or vice versa. And so getting out and growing up. And I think that the late teens to the mid to late 20s, is where a lot of our formation as an adult actually occurs. We've arrested youth's development by treating people until they're 18 like they're children instead of treating them like children when they're young and progressing them to adulthood, young adulthood. And so I think that the fact that the average, the last I read, the average higher age in the United States was 27 to 33. That's phenomenal for the fire. Yes. We're getting older people that have had a chance to manage themselves. They've ideally developed adult-like interactions. And what we should be looking at is do our training methodologies need to, especially with indoctrination, need to change. I mean, here's here's an example of that. And it's subtle. And we say it all the time. When I was in the recent academy, before we got out, not everybody. And, and for the record, the cadre that's down there right now, it's phenomenal. It's probably, it's, it's a fantastic training group, but there are some people there that are much, much, much more senior. Mm-hmm. Um, 
one of our recruits was a 40 year old. Oh, okay. We had a, we had the youngest person who was 22. The average age was about 27 to 29. So when a instructor refers to new recruits as kids, uh, they're not kids, right? They're not your kids. They're not our kids. Many of these people have children and they have done many, many, many other things. Most, many of which better than we as an instructor group could individually do them. What we have more experience in is firefighting. And that's what we should be teaching them. Right. And if our training model with, especially with recruits as an, as an industry is fixed and stuck to when people came in when they were 18 to 23, uh, that's not the case anymore. And if I was in a hiring position, it would be a really mature 23 year old that I would hire really mature because I was was to a podcast with Shannon stone and he had mentioned, um, you know, sometimes you got to look past the search when you're hiring and look at the the person. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that, so, I mean, little subtle things, they're not kids. Don't refer to them as kids. Don't treat them like they're children. Don't be subjective about why they're having an issue be objective about they are having an issue and what do we need to do to make not have an issue. Um, I don't think we have to be fire and brimstone and screaming and yelling and raising our blood pressure in part seriousness. And anyone that's worked, I mean, it's one of the things I ask the people that I've worked with as rookies when they're a year or two in, when they feel free to be honest is at any point, did you feel like my demeanor detracted from my seriousness and to a person they all say no we knew that technically you were the most demanding but you were patient Mm -hmm. and there was no lack of seriousness there was uh quote passion that you love what you're doing you love the mission these are this is the medium to accomplish the mission but there was never, there's never for me a subjective. I mean, there are recruits that I've, that have had trouble. And if we don't know why they're having trouble, it's easy to go, God, they're just stupid or they're just this or they're just that. It's, you can't say that. You can't even think it. You don't know what it is. You don't know that one guy moved halfway across the country and hasn't seen his wife and kids in you know, three and a half months or one guy had a major, major, major health issue with his wife week two of the academy and didn't miss a day. Or the guy that seemed distracted had a had a family member die half a continent away and was going to fly home on the weekend. I mean, you don't know all those things. Right. Sometimes it's a question of their inherent ability, stress management, you know, the ability to track multiple things at a time fine motor skills, perspective skills, all those things. But often the reason with performance is, is something else going on and, or they don't have the time. They're not, they're not to the point yet when that stuff is processed. How many times have you seen a new person struggle for two or three weeks and all of a sudden it clicks 
Absolutely. And so with all of this training stuff, we have to be objective, not subjective. We cannot make a supposition as to why something's going on. We have to objectively diagnose the problem that they're having with whatever the subject matter is and that they are or aren't making it. The fact that someone had a health issue doesn't affect my disposition with you didn't make time. You're going to have to make time. Right. Right. And, and you've got to be able to do this skill sets. And if you can't, for whatever reason. But the reason I like to know what's going on is one trust. Because then I can be an advocate and ambassador of what our job is supposed to be. And two, um, it removes any tendency of me to be subjective. It's a struggle consistently. Human nature to watch something and try to diagnose what it is. And in the fire service, because we quote unquote put so much emphasis on character, that is often the first thing that's questioned. Wow, they're just not gritty enough or or whatever. And I remind myself through through getting to know the people that I'm going to be working with. So many people treat training like a boot camp experience. It's not a boot camp experience. Drill instructors don't go to war with their recruit. Right. That's a, a really good point, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon. And one of the critiques is often, well, it's very, quote, you, you know, your, your procedure, your teaching model, all that stuff has this appearance of being um, just, it is, it is, a, it's a system. Mm-hmm. What's more quote unquote paramilitary than that. Right. I mean, right. it's a system. This is how we do it. This is the objective. Let's go. And when you get to the end of it, you'll have the ability to improv, but you can't teach something, one thing and expect people to improv it. Right. They have to have cognitive benchmarks based upon experience, recognition, prime decision-making or the OODA loop, whatever you want to call it. And that is formulated in that in training. So um, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm concerned with performance and in some ways, you know, I joked about before about being a hermit a little bit that helps me because I'm not interested, nor do I give a shit about what the guy three stations away thinks of me. I don't care. Like I'm concerned with performance. I care about, you know, ideally they think I'm a decent person. And they respect my work ethic. Um, but whether or not they're like, you know, it's not a popularity contest, simply terms. And many firefighters behave like it is a popularity contest. It's not a popularity contest. It's a performance contest. And that's fundamentally what I'm concerned with. It's performance. And if the human, if anything gets in the way of that in a training model, then it's not the priority. Right. Yeah. So with you being, I mean, so uh, hands on with training, you, you go around the country training, you, you do training for your fire department. When do you think you'll make the leap over to a permanent training position? Or do you get the best of both worlds right now? <laughs> <laughs> An interesting question. Um, that process has started um, a couple of years ago. A couple friends of mine or a friend of mine 
made a suggestion. Uh, it was way outside what I ever thought was, was possible. Um, or even outside what I thought I wanted, but through going through the process and getting damn close, um, it made me reflect on what I wanted to do and what I, where I get my most satisfaction besides going to fires and, or on par with, and sometimes, sometimes even on par with, and it's training. And forever I had thought I will ride out on the back seat. I love what I'm doing. I'm still healthy, can still get around. Um, maybe I'll do that promotional thing. And, you know, I, you keep all options open. So I'm, I'm in the middle of the promotional process in Seattle. But, um, you know, while everybody else was cramming, I was at training. Right. So my written score isn't, isn't, isn't anything to write home about. I mean, it, uh, and you know, the critique has been, well, you should have, I should have what I should have went to training for 10 hours a day and then come home and spent four hours a night studying material. That's a mobile trivial trivia test, which is what our promotion is at least the written part of it and taken away from my kids. And they, if you think that being a lieutenant is more important than my family, that person is vastly confused. And so, uh, you know, I did what I could do and I'll pursue it. But as far as the training, uh, aspect that in, in, in working through that progress, that's kind of the direction I'm going. Unfortunately, um, it's probably not possible in my own agency. I mean, I, I could do some more in training, Mm-hmm. just recently, but, uh, in order to execute the plan, it would be, you know, 12 years of active testing, passing right away and getting the ideal assignment right away Right before I got to a position that has come across my desk. People offered it. It right. just, at this point, hasn't been the right fit. Um, but I think that, I mean, I don't know I, if I work the rest of my job in my life at, at this job where I'm at with who I'm with, that's awesome. I mean, that's just, it's phenomenal. Um, but in, in answer to your question, it's funny that you asked me that I, uh, there's a couple of processes I've, I've, that I've gone through and have been very successful with uh just not quite enough and so uh yeah it 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 was long nights like i can sleep i I come from a long line of of distinguished nappers and i don't (laughs) i don't have any problem sleeping uh and in this process of working through this concept of who you are and what it is you do Sometimes it takes outside observation, outside perspective to push you and go, hey, it's clear to everyone else. Maybe you should look at this. Um, And, you know, at 50, uh, it probably extends my shelf life a little bit. And um, 
the other one is impact. I mean, you know, it, I can have a, I can have, I've already had that impact. You know, I've, I've organized, taught, managed, developed instructors at a a much higher level currently Mm -hmm. than most of the positions that I would be interested in, like two or three times more than that, you know, so it's, I don't, it's, I don't lack that management experience in that realm. Right. Um, And that's the key. It's got to be in that. So what you're saying is basically you would have to take a bunch of tests for Seattle just to get to a certain rank to be considered or ready for training. Okay. I see that. I've talked to a lot of people on the podcast and I mean, heavy hitters, obviously, and, and, and some really cool people that are making differences. And they all say the kind of the same thing. And I was really curious about you is, you know, they always say, you know, one's a prophet in their own land. You know, people that you and I might think are heavy hitters and would love to talk to and like to talk to, mm-hmm. you know, and they say in their own department, some people are like, ah, guess be shit or who cares and all that. Do you get any pushback since your name is, is so well known throughout the United States and the fire service completely? I mean, we have systems and relationships that can have direct, honest con- conversation without conflict or someone being insulted. And, so I'm always making sure that the perspective of what I'm doing fits the ideal that I have so that I'm not blind to a particular aspect, right? So early on, this is a, and the reason I answered this question this way is early on, there was some resistance. And in the department today, there still are people that will say, ah, oh, you know, blah, blah, blah. The, the difference is, is that 10 years ago, 100 people been through the program Mm -hmm. today we're working on our 14th or 15th recruit school 16th recruit school that this was the foundation for all their host stuff right and their and their their tactic um i've been included in writing sogs for our our department um redesigning hose beds and so the other component of it is is that, well, if you ever do a nozzle forward class, it's not Aaron Fields teaching the nozzle forward. It's the nozzle forward. Mm-hmm. And this is where my little bit of hermit comes in beneficial is I'm not interested in how many people know me. Well, my name is known. That doesn't matter to me. Uh, and in many ways, the publicity sometimes for my personality as my kids would tell you, is too much. I I have to create systems that keep this kind of separation between my work life and my what I do off work, um, and my off work time. And so because it's not important to me that I have my name in the lights or uh, any of that, it doesn't have to be me. And so relatively rapidly after... Uh, so I developed coaches in my sport mm-hmm. and I took those lessons learned and applied them to developing coaches in my vocation. And so the nozzle forward cadre, um, there's a couple of things I'll comment on that. And, and, but within the Seattle fire department, there's another group of people that are teaching this, this material 
like 20 of them, 25 of them, of all different generations within the agency, with all different ranks within the agency. So I kind of spearhead the effort, but I don't have to be there. And sometimes what I'll do is I'll lay out the lesson plan. We'll do our in-service training, and then I'll only teach four times during the month and a half or two months that we're running everybody through. So that, now, are you talking about your new recruits or when you go and teach nozzle forward? I'm talking about not only the recruits, but also the in-service training that we do for our okay. non-recruits within Seattle. Okay. I got you. I got you. So I have two different kind of groups of people that I work with. There's a few people that cross over like Jordan Legan, Matt Lujan, Mark Maline, uh, the, Hans Christensen. Uh, they come from, Seattle, and they also teach in the national, the 18 of us that teach around the country. Mm-hmm. Um, but within the fire department, I set people up so that it's a concerted effort. And none of our instructors, it's one of the things that I demand is you never, well, you not never. There's two phrases. This is what we do. This is what I've done. There was one time that I versus we. And what we code our people is that we always start the training with the we. What are the benchmarks? What are the transitions? All of that stuff. Here's the standard issue. And if I'm going to say me, then what I'm telling the people that are taking the program is that I'm giving you experience, not standard issue. I'm telling you the experience of using this stuff. This is what we do. There was one time I was in a Collier mansion and I modified the the hold this way because of this. Mm-hmm. So now there's very clear delineation between what we are showing and what different levels of experience bring to it. If one of the people that teach with me says, this is what I do, or they say, this is what we do, they don't get many chances with that. And the reason is, is we are trying to teach a system, not a collection of technique. We're, the, my, my stuff that I do is based on principle, not on technical. Like, do I have ways to do it? Yes. But the, the, it, my whole process didn't start with, let me learn a bunch of techniques and then go show some people these techniques. My whole process started with, I need to be able to accomplish these things inside of fire and these things outside of fire. Now, let me go figure out ways through taking other people's programs to deal with these things. Not So in other words, I don't, I didn't start my process with how to do things. I started my process with what I needed to do in what conditions. Right. So could you take, it sounds like to me, you could take, you could unplug basically uh, flowing and moving and stick in, uh, you know, ladders. Yours is more of, is how you teach less than exactly what you teach. Does that make any sense? Am I, am I kind of No, yeah, that? no. The, so to, to follow up and finish with the first point. So the resistance in my fire department is much, much, much less than it used to be because people are seeing one, the results. Two, it's not just me. They're not just listening to me. They're listening to all of these voices that have support at all levels. Water boils from the bottom, but in order to boil the pot, you need bubbles at the top too. 
Mm-hmm. Right. It's, and so the answer to that first question is yes, there was some resistance today. There's much, much, much less. And for the most part, according to my deputy chief, um, the, our host stuff is some of the best reviewed annual training do oh. because of our model. Now with that, you know, what we do in the, in the, in the nozzle forward group is all engine. It's engine tactics. It's engine deployments. It's, it's looking at the logistics of an engine. Uh, so we cover the engine rig to door, door to seat, what we do in the fire room. And it's very algorithmic. So flowing and moving the one of our major things that we teach, because it's something that many places forgot how to do. Um, that's not all that we do. So, but in answer to your question, yep. What, you know, lot yesterday, in fact, I was up in the, the county north of King County, Snohomish County, teaching a class called Drilling for Function, mm-hmm. which is about five years ago, people that had been through the nozzle forward a bunch of times came to me and they were like, you know, um, I was just doing what I've been trained to do, how to, how to coach and how to, how to research what it is you need to be able to do. And they came to me and said, listen, it's clear that there's a system. We're implementing this curriculum for, for our department and the department around us. Can you come? We all know the curriculum. Can you come show us how that you go about teaching it? Because it's funny to me that with, and I remember him saying, with 200 people in a class or 50 people in the class, you're done at the same time with every skill station. Mm-hmm. And it's about scale and it's about knowing how long the different things take and what has to be taught. You teach things out of order and you slow down, you'll learn, but it'll slow it down. So about five or six years ago, I did that program. And in the last five years, I've been teaching this drilling for function class, which is a instructor, instructional models, uh, educational models for psychomotor skills rather than the academic com- components that are our, our instructor one and instructor two. You know, really instructor one and instructor two are, are weird combinations of three to five different teaching models that <laughs> aren't even put together by someone that's actually an educator. It's, it's, it's a very much a non-educator writing, taking people's stuff and and shoving it together. And if you yeah, follow exactly. how they're doing it, those models all trace back to academic arena, which is fundamentally different than psychomotor skill because you need cognitive recollection with limited perception and the ability to apply motor skills in compact, time-compressed, acutely stressful environments. So how do you teach people to do something while it's going wrong? And that there's a physical component to it of heart rate related to physical trauma and acute perspective or perceptive uh, chaos. So, um, you know, what's going on between your ears? If it, none of it makes sense to you, your heart rate's up at a certain point. You, your body does certain things at certain heart rates, regardless of who you are. Right. And we're hardwired for it. So I teach this, this program that is really about exactly what you alluded to, which is doesn't matter. Insert single leg takedowns, 
insert uh, bow and arrow, insert ladder, insert forcible entry, insert tactical SOG training, insert you name it, follow this model with some customized, you know, it has to be customizable, but how do you determine what you teach first? How do you lay out and understand time that it takes? How long does it take to teach a certain thing? And so that we can, what are the common mistakes? Um, you know, the whole curriculum class design coupled with a bit of biology, it very, it's all a big kind of overview designed to let people give people some skill sets so that if they were going to design or they were a training officer, they could design a training model that was universally, universally applicable. Right. So that everything was moving together. You know, how many phases of skill acquisition are there? There's three distinct steps. What are the percentages of time of your total training time? Do you have to spend in each phase? What are the things that you do in every single phase? So often what you see in the fire service is you see, um, I show a technique, you show a technique, we now do a drill. And in the drill, the two techniques that we showed aren't enough to get the drill done. So, okay. Instead of. Okay, give me an example. So let's let's talk about forcing a door, right? An indoor swinging door. So as opposed to just showing somebody this is how you do it with you know, the ads is how you do it with the forks. How would you go about that? Because to be honest with you, what you're describing is what I've done in the past and I would love to learn. So how, what, what are you saying for that? Something like that. Yeah. So forcing a door and, you know, this is a funny one because I've, I've recently reached out to a couple of friends of mine. Um, kind of laid this out to them and they're, they're kind of, well, they're, they're superb forcible entry truck ladders and, and, at it and they're so good at it that when you talk to them it's a little their brain is making connections between the things that they're saying that yours isn't right so it sometimes it's not that organized in their in their presentation and you know i'll go and watch a a forcible injury class I've seen it multiple times over the last 12 years where they have 50 doors lined up awesome and they just break them and they just work down them. Mm-hmm. and every one is different. What I would say is 73% of the doors that we force are inward swinging wood doors because they're single family. Dwellings. So, and what is the one tool that everybody has conventional irons? And what's the one now, do you want to take the flathead ax or do you want to take the mall with the, something with older heavy irons. Okay, whatever. But really, the one tool, whether your whatever your blunt impact trauma tool is, mm-hmm. your one tool, the halogen. What's the movement that you make with a halogen, no matter what door you're forcing? And you teach gap in every context. So before we move on to another way to get it, we got to teach gap. Each, and then what comes next? Gap, set, force. You, you teach set. Force is the one that can vary a little bit, right? Depending on what tool we're doing. Right. So what's the difference? Why, why would we choose one tool over the other because of leverage or 
layout. So you've got to create the space. Like you can't just say in a big yard, this is a confined space. You actually have to create it. Create it with pallets. It doesn't matter. But not everybody learns visually through the spoken word. So you need to figure out ways to simulate these things. And what I would do is these contexts. And what I would do is, you know, I start everything with what are we doing? Why are we doing it? When would we do it? And then how? That is the order for every skill that we are ever going to teach. You change the order. You increase the amount of time before the person is seamless with the information. What, why, when, how? So you've got to create the win in these stations. So I would start with gap, right? And then set. And I would gap and set and gap and set. And I would let them work gap and set on every setting that it was appropriate before I moved on to another technique. Sort of spoon feeding them each section. Uh, or give them plenty of time. Or programming them to rec. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But programming them to recognize the conditions that warrant this choice over the other choice. One, two, three, A, B, C. If this, then this. If not, then this. If not, then this. Hose work. How many real problems can we have? People create these complex fucking drills, but there's only two bends on average on a one story and three on a two for the average single family, right? Mm -hmm. 14 to 1800 square feet, one line fires, in one and two rooms. And if it's two rooms, is it horizontal or vertical? That's it. Right. And then what are your problems? Loss of water. Why? Really doesn't matter. Now does it? Hmm. Other than for the engineer or the backup. Um, but whether it's the pump, the supply, the line itself, uh, kink, loss of water, your procedures for that, because we don't always know what that is, and why that is. So, what else is there? Two-line fire, a backup fire, a below grade and an above grade, and a call your mansion. If you practice those variables in any core keystone evolution, then you've gotten, you've covered response to all the basic classifications of an emergency. And call, you know, in a whole. But so what we do is we, we, we're not, like you said, spoon feeding. We're not progressive enough in teaching skills. We teach a skill, then we jump to another skill, then we come back to the first skill. You work through the possibilities of the first skill, and then you move on to the next skill, and then the next skill. And if you've got more than three, maybe four skills, you have too many. Because a lot of behavioral science suggests that skilled participants have three options at any one moment in an acutely stressful environment. It's not you and me sitting down at the table with everything in front of us. It's what am I got to do? And our job is really simple. It, it's all simple. Complexity is simple things compounded. So right. instead of teaching the evolution that's unwinnable, make the object, object of the drill attainable. For example, how many people, uh, well, I know that in the, in the Nozzle Forward program, we have evolutions where you will back out. You will not make the fire. You are going to back out. Mm -hmm. 
I had never taken a class where that was an option. Most people that I know never actually practice the vast majority, like over 95%, never done an evolution. They need to back out. So they won't, they won't do it. We say, well, it's common sense. It's not common sense because if it was common sense, I would have done it on the first fire that I was on where I got kind of dinged up a little bit, the mm-hmm. impetus for this whole thing. Right. If we oversell our ability all the time, that's why people can convince themselves that unlike every other performance-based occupation, they don't need to prepare because they've got a bunch of time on the job. Wow. Yeah. Try that in the NFL. Yeah. You, or NHL or SEAL teams or force recon or PJs or infantry. Try it with any performance-based occupation. And with that, we have to look at ourselves from this angle and not so much the tradesman angle because plumbers do their job every single day. We don't. Yep, absolutely. And that's a difference, right? Their their initial training sets them up. And so we are a vocation. We are a trade, but we are unlike the construction trades and they're actually doing their stuff. Right. So they don't need as much practice. But they still do it if you're journeying. Your apprentice, those first four years, you're taking going to work and then going and taking classes and passing technical competency. That's how you get your next license. Well, let me ask you this. You, you, you're passionate about training, clearly. And you have, like a lot of people I know, and I'm probably going to throw myself under the bus on this one too, passionate about training. But sometimes I have a hard time finding out which path to take to get to that training, if that makes sense. So when you work with your training cadre at Seattle with these new recruits, does your idea and opinions clash with how they do it? Because I assume they probably do it to meet a state requirement. And what you're talking about is making a smarter, better firefighter. No, we don't. Our, 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 uh, no, we, Seattle is, what I will say is they aren't shy about jumping on big projects. So what we did in the Seattle Fire Department, we did. I, I didn't do this part of it. Um, they wrote standards that show that we not only meet but exceed state standards. Okay. And so we do internal testing, and then we do have a, a to uphold a certain agreement with the state. So when the state comes in, we have our own group of people that are state certified proctors and test leads, but they work for Seattle. And if we bring outside people in, we hand them the skill sheets and we give them a technical consultant so they can look and go, right. Is that the right technique based off the skill sheet? Right. And we're like, that's right. So that's how we, we handle it. And that's how really everyone should handle it because, and that's the way that the material was originally intended but when these organizations started offering, you know, out of the box training with loose enough objectives that you can customize the specific means and methodologies, mm-hmm. just meet these standards, uh, people didn't do their own. They didn't do their legwork. They didn't do what they needed to do. So they just took it right off the shelf. And now they wonder why their training, co- uh, their training compendium nothing to do with how it really happens in the field. It's because they didn't do their end of the bargain. We should be looking at, you know, whatever, whatever we think about standards and all that, 
um, they exist and work until we get inside and alter them uh, to fit. We got to play by them. And, and so write your own rules, write your own rules that you're playing by as long as you meet it or exceed it. That's it. So we did the legwork as an agency. I say we, we did the legwork and um, we have all of our own skill sheets that have all the citation and, and as a nozzle forward cadre outside of the city, uh, that's something we're working on our manual, we're working on a training compendium and we're in some more videos. And then we're also working on documenting implementation and creating generic skill sheets that meet all standards that people can take and interpret our methodology and whatever fits their personal demographics. It's, it, it's time consuming, but not that difficult. Now, after the recruit class is out online, do they have certain standards they have to maintain as far as training goes? Uh, they have a rookie book, uh, which is a series of tasks and things that they have to go through. They take a couple of tests every month. Um, the degree that that material is dove off into mm-hmm. varies based on where they get assigned, right? Some, some crews, like, you know, you might not find it hard to believe that my crew is very pro-training. Uh, <laughs> every one of my crew, the other guy on the tailboard with me, my captain, like my captain is phenomenal with with rookies. I've never seen another captain up after doing all day, doing a couple of drills, doing a tabletop drill, a couple of manipulative drills that sometimes all run or the driver will run. And the driver is probably the best technical driver I've ever worked with. He really knows his job. He, he also worked with my dad, which was pretty cool. Um, oh, wow. And, and uh, so the captain will hand off this rookie to the crew, and then we'll always do something as a crew. But like the, the crew member might be working on hose movement mm-hmm. and nobody else is out there. Just myself and the rookie or Parrish and the rookie. Um, and then sometimes we'll come together. That happens every day. And then you, you get up for a run at midnight and the captain and the rookie are up in the watch office and he's taking him through simulations the pog which is our personal operating guideline Mm -hmm. uh explaining to him not only what our rules are but the cap's got enough time on that he can explain how the rules have changed and give little funny stories as to who changed the rule (laughs) (laughs) yeah there's always a somebody behind a rule change (laughs) right so if, if a rookie comes to our rig and there are other ones that are on par with this for sure uh if all over the city there's great training companies and stations all over the city but not everyone is and so if the rookie gets assigned to particular places with particular people they don't ever actually i mean i'm not you know this isn't company line but i know for a fact there are people checking off their skills in the book that they talked them through it yeah pennsylvania that's sad. You hate to. You hate. That's usually the same people that bitch about the newer generation firefighters, <laughs> right? And also complain every time they've got to go to training. Which every time I mean like five times a year, right? right. <laughs> I get that a yeah. lot. Yeah. 
Uh, we talked about, um, we've talked a couple of times about the, uh, the why of training. And I tell you, it's something that's always on the forefront of my head. We uh, Usually it's with the newer generation, but then I incorporated it into all my training and I'm still failing at it. And I'll tell you how, I'll give you a good example. We just had some SCBA training uh, two weeks ago. And basically what I had everybody do is they pair up, they take the SCBA, tangle it up, however they got to tangle it up turn on the pass, and then they push it towards the other person who can't see out of his mask. And they've got full PPE. And that with gloved hands, they got to feel, feel each little landmark, unhook everything, and get it to where it's wearable, put it on, and breathe air. And so I'm teaching this. I'm getting good feedback from it. And guys are like either flying through it or saying, well, you know, I need to work on this. But at the end, I had one guy say, well, I really enjoy this training. I just can't imagine when I'd ever have an SEBA in a, a burning building all tangled up like this. And I'm like, that's when I realized, I'm like, I didn't really tell him why I'm doing this. I don't believe for a second you're going to run into this in a fire. But if you want to become an expert on an air pack, then you should do it. This is one of the ways you can do it. And right. I, I caught is, myself. Yeah. The, yeah, no, that's that's really that's that's outstanding many instructors would say because i said you're going to do it that's why right. or they'd make up some bullshit story to tell themselves about why they didn't mention that this is gear familiarization and it's it's scba rubik's cube right we recognize that this Ooh, i isn't, like that i'm stealing that by the way <laughs> yeah go for it that we recognize that you will never find yourself in this position so whether or not you get through this super fast or super slow, doesn't matter. What we want you to do is go through these steps because this is teaching you tactile recognition of what your parts are and where they are on your SCBA. Then what you could do is you could go to the next phase where you've shown that, you've done that, and then you do something like a transfill. Mm -hmm. And then you do something that's real. Not real as far as what I think about it, but by looking at data of and examples from across the country of SCBA malfunctions mm. and creating environments that replicate those events because there are trends in there's trends in Murphy law, like in what fire instructors like to do. And this is, I'm not saying that this was the case with you, but what fire instructors like to do is they like to come up with something that's unwinnable. It gets more and more and more and more difficult. And the difficulty is where the, the, um, where the value is when in fact, is it real life simulation or is it gear familiarization or is it simply a new way to practice with your equipment? You have to be specific. Right. But one of the things that you right, like this is, and this goes into your SCBA thing. I, we did a couple of years ago, we did this, SCBA training for rescue. And for the whole, it was awesome. We had real houses. The people leading the, the coaching, the events were really great because they showed you the three major methods. They also prioritized those methods for the most part. So which one is most likely, which one is second likely, which one would be your third. And uh, what, but what they needed to do is go the next step and say, if you find a person down, this is your first play. This one 
solves every problem. You know, but there is one thing that I took umbrage with, which is this is a single family dwelling, right? Mm -hmm. Replacing my face piece inside a fire. Instead of just getting them out. (laughs) Instead of cracking the bypass so that it's like a scuba face piece, it pushes fresh air in, click them into the rit and drag them. Don't take my face piece off. If I'm not breathing and my heart's not beating, drag me the 15 seconds and get me outside before you start trying. So they, the next step with this training, I thought the training overall was really good. And we went through, we went through some practice, skill practice, and then we did some drills. And in the drill phase of learning, the associative phase, you don't learn new skills. You put them to use in context. And, and there was no event, which was, Okay, grab them and go. Just grab them and go. And let's compare the times between in a single family dwelling, tying in with the bag, uh, tying in with a spare face piece, buddy breathing, and getting them outside. Right. Let's just see. And now what you would do is you would say, none of these is the always choice. But it's evident, grab them and go. Right. Except if you've never done it, you won't do it. Right. You won't do it. If you statistically, you only do those things in under high stress environment, which we can all agree this would be uh, that you're statistically that your neurological pathways have already been connected. Your first shot should be, is this a call your mansion? Can we just grab it and go? Do we need to do all this funny stuff or can we just hook his pack? And drag, and oh, his face piece is cracked. Which, like, that sounds great, but I can't think of many cases that I know of that that's happened. Right, well, that's a good so point. And also, to teach that on par with transfilling and cracking the bypass and overpressurizing, and if it's a forty-second drag to get him out or two minutes to get him out, you've got that in your bottle. Yeah, right. So. The, the, some of the, the next step on that drilling has to be providing an opportunity to do every option from probable to possible. I like that. And in context. I know when uh, <clears throat> I've been to classes where they teach, I've had taken Rick classes where same, same thing. It's a, a, a one story residential. And then they always teach after you, get the firefighter, you take him out the way you came. And that was their thing over and over. Take him out the way you came, take him out the way you came. I'm like, is this supposed to be a house? Yes. Okay. Is that a window? Yes. Or is there a kitchen right there with a door closer? Why do I got to go the same door that I came in? Right. So, I get yep. what you're saying. I think the one thing, there's a program out there. And unfortunately I've never had the chance to do it uh, just because of time and where it's at. But I know people that teach for it. I have a lot of pals that have been through it, which is the folk diver schools. And oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, consistently I, I have a lot of respect for that training because it is designed around real events. It's not instructors creating ever increasing complexity and then having the solution. Their job is to set up situations, show some basic skills, 
and then you have them work through. Right. And everyone that I know that's done this program, there's no one that's like, oh, it wasn't any good. And that kind of an approach is is pretty awesome because they're building from reality, not building from the fiction of the mind. Right. Well, I think in your area, do you know Michael Snodgrass? Uh, He does the fire talks. Anyway. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, he does the, uh, I hope I'm not getting this wrong, the the Randy Carpenter Memorial Fire School. And he he does like a two or three day RIT training himself. Uh, and he, and I've talked to him about it and it's, it sounds pretty amazing. You know, it's, it's kind of the same thing that you, I take that back. It's not like smoke divers. It's only like smoke divers in the sense that it pushes you physically where your brain is a little bit shot as well as your body. And then, then they go to work basically. Yep. So, yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And you know, some of the writ training, so statistical, uh, one of my, one of my battalion chiefs who I don't work for now is getting ready to retire great guy. He's a funny dude because he's a, we, he and I share a, Oh, an enjoyment of, I know this is everyone's opinion. Let's look at the numbers mm-hmm. is, is our perspective of what's happening line up with assessment of what's happening. And if not, what's in conflict and where can we, you know, so, and his, his big thing is, you know, Statistically, what saves people in buildings are other people in buildings. So I think some of our enrit teams typically don't make solo saves. They make saves, and when they help, it's in conjunction with interior crews, or they've softened interior crew to get out. Right. I think we should have some RIT training that included that. That's a good point. You've got crews working inside. A building where your sense depleted. There's too much noise. You can't see. You got a mayday of a patient or a firefighter that's down. Uh, they can't get out. Go. Interior crews go. Exterior crews go. After you've practiced, you know all the requisite skills, so that that because we don't do that. We don't practice written interface. Uh, your your you know, communication would have to be on point, though, wouldn't it? Uh, oh, absolutely. It would be, be awesome. And then you could go, okay, I know you guys can make a save as a RIP team solo. I know these crews operating inside can make a save, RIP team or uh, near, nearby company solo. But really what we want is everybody making a save together. <laughs> and let's, let's practice that happening. Like, um, you know, I want to see – People descend on it. If I'm trapped inside a building, I want somebody to get me a hose and get me air. And I want everyone to descend on the building and take it apart around me. Like, let's <laughs> cut the wall. Get me out that way. Just give me a, a hose line and some air and tell me it's going to be okay and sit there with me because one person doesn't save one person. Right. Absolutely. So, well, hell, Phoenix proved that with uh, after they lost lost Brett Carver. Carver. Yeah. Yeah. Then they fifteen hundred fifteen hundred evolutions. Oh yeah. And they oh, figured yeah. it was like what was it? I'm in New York, I think, and I think they came up with twelve to save one. Yep. And I think the modern day writ profile maybe lowers that a bit, mm-hmm. but that doesn't hedge a bet, doesn't it? That or asks asks the question of if. 
it takes 12, 1,500 red evolutions apiece between the two agencies, I think, or each. So 3,000 total or something like that, and 12 to save one. Now, maybe we're down to six to save one or eight to save one because it's no longer, the focus is no longer on getting them out. It's getting them secure, rescuing in place, and then systematically pulling them out if the extraction is difficult. Right. Um, so you and I go into a building on a hand line, and there are two people outside. What does that do for me? Like you said, one doesn't rescue one. One doesn't rescue one, and two don't rescue two. Right. Uh, you know, I think that I'm not, and people are like, oh, anti red team. No, I'm not anti red team. I'm anti putting something that has minimal effect ahead of things that have maximum effect. Right. I care about that crew. So maybe my driver on the outside, you know, you've got to take all kinds of demographics into concern. How long to the second do? How many people are coming? All of those things might change your tactical disposition, but two people might be able to get one person out. One isn't getting one. And if two get in trouble, two aren't getting that one. Right. Right. So I, I just, not to say that we shouldn't have some caution and throw, I'm not, I'm not into that, but the numbers tell a different story than many people interpret to be. So that could be my, that could be my soundbite. Uh, Aaron Fields thinks Ritz for pussies. <laughs> no, I think it's awesome. I just don't, I'm not, I would rather have another guy inside uh, than a, than four guys on three guys on the outside. Right. Right. And you know, it, there's so much to do with, uh, with your staffing. And like you said, Oh yeah. You your know. demographics. Like, yeah, yeah. For, yeah, yeah. If you've got, you know, your demographics are what, what, what they, what they are, and that's going to affect this massively. And I'm not saying don't establish a writ team, but do we need a writ team in the first three minutes? Right. Right. And, and, is, and when, who's going to do that is, is a conversation. It has to be done. I'm all for it. The conversation is based off of our demographics, the number of people on our apparatus, the time between our apparatus, the type of occupancies we're working in, all of those things should allow us to determine how we are going to deploy for this model. So, yeah. Well, you know, and I think, too, that um, RIT isn't done correctly. So you, you talk about manpower and having extra people to get the job done as opposed to just sitting outside. My my feeling is people that are on writ can do so much outside while yeah. on writ, throwing ladders, help move hose. Uh, you can even have a depending on the atmosphere, you can have a guy at the door pushing hose. I mean, there's a lot you can do with writ on the outside that would free somebody up to do something on the inside. Right. And even if your whole writ team, maybe you have a seat on your whatever apparatus is or apparati is doing um writ. Maybe you have a seat that's job is to interface, get up on the front porch, see what's going on, where are these crews at? Hey, we could we could take the bars off these windows and get a ladder to the seaside second story. Right. I mean, so that you're like you're saying, you still have your reflex to reduce your reflex time. You still have your team standing by, but you've got somebody that's getting hands on just a little bit. Mm-hmm. So that enough that they are in the mix so that they know where people are. Right. 
right? And, and, and they could be and, great and set eyes for them as a commander too. That's nice. Absolutely. Thing. I mean, yeah, you come back and I'm like, hey, boss, this is a Collier mansion. There's three doors or two doors and or a door on the back with three windows. We could use a ladder to one of those windows. The fire room is over in this corner. It's extended into here. We should think about maybe telling the boss, the chief, to get another line ready. I mean, all of those. Like, we are going to have to go through a pile of garbage to get to this person. Let's prepare for that. Right. You know? Yeah. So in some some places do that. I mean, some people listen to it and go, oh, that's what we do. Most places don't. No. Most places the RIT team sits back with the hose and the ladders and all the tools on a tarp or whatever it is and go, okay, don't touch my cash. Yeah. Uh, it's not, it's not, it's not tied in. It hasn't been started. We've got, you know, eight good ladders that are not being deployed. Like, Oh yeah. I've never understood seeing ladders on a truck at a two story house and no, and only one ladder up to a window of, and that's one of the things when I get there, I'm kind of like, those ladders will go right back on that truck. I swear to yeah, God, they, they will. And you almost don't even have to clean them. Yeah. Yeah. If they don't use them, you're fine. You're fine. Yeah. Well, and you know, the, the case is, is, well, usually not. Usually we don't need those. Right. Yeah. That's that's the excuse. Well, usually we don't. Well, yeah, but when we do, it's going to be make all the usually nots and yeah. doing it on all the usually nots worth it. Right. So, yeah, there, there's a lot of line of duty tests where they they thought uh, that would never happen or we never need this, never need that. Or, you know, and I, I like when people try to uh, second guess line of duty deaths. I'll never understand this because, like I've said in the past, Fireman's blood isn't free. It's our job to learn from them, and and hopefully nobody else has to go through it twice. But I've had people when I try to explain what happened to John Nance, they're like, "Well, why didn't he do this?" I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what he was thinking. I mean, when he was, you know, in the basement and you know didn't have his mask on. I I don't want to tell, but just take this and build on it. Well, you think he would do this? I'm like, oh my god. I don't know why what happened happened. But I do know what happened. Yes, exactly. And I'm going to practice so that that doesn't happen. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. I mean, and the more you can diagnose it, the more you're like, oh, it was this and this and this. Well, then you can treat, teach cues that see those things before they compound like that. Mm-hmm. But like in March, I, I got laid up a little bit at work. Um, foot went through a hole. And foot got caught on a burned out beam, twisted my foot and ripped my metacarpals and stuff like that. And uh, so it was the longest time I've been off ever. It's the most time I've had away from work of any sort in 31 years. I'd had that, to that point, I hadn't had more than 14 days off in 31 right. years. And, um, you know, uh, I was doing things correctly. I was sounding the floor. Um, but what happened was, is my last sound was on the last intact beam. Oh. And the next sound, the rest of the beams were burned out. And the next sound hit the edge of the hole with still some carved plywood in place. And, my, and as I shifted my weight, my foot went through it. Fortunately, I fell backwards because of the position we're in. Uh, you know, people are sometimes, you know, talking about back leg up or whatever. We're always our weight is always back. And uh, so you're not crawling around. You're doing the tripod position. Right. Exactly. And always because my weight's back. And 
Um, in this case, you know, people, oh, you know, I could just as easily do this or this. I'm like, right. But this method sets up for that. I was sounding the floor. I was being cognizant of what I was doing. I was probably moving too fast because the first three or four sounds that steps that I had made were rock solid. I had quantified on the radio that we needed to make sure there wasn't fire below us. And, um, but yeah, you miss things. That's, and that's the point of having a robust, rigorous, simple system is that it catches it when you did things right. But sometimes bad shit just happens and you miss things and you can't help it. And that's, so do you have enough of a bumper that you're not going into the hole or it's, you know, so, um, yeah, we, you know, I, I, we've got to be assessing what happened and understanding why and all those things. But at the end of the day, it's not our job. Like you said, to judge the mistake. It's our job to prepare for it. Absolutely. And yeah, people, Oh, I would never do that. You just might like, you know, you never know. You never know when your lizard brain is going to kick in and you think you, if yes. you're just sitting in the firehouse, you can talk about 30 different ways oh. to handle something. <clears throat> But in the middle of the shit, you might come up with one or two. <laughs> maybe. And if you're skilled, maybe three. Yeah. Yeah, yep. absolutely. Yeah. Well, brother, listen, I really appreciate you being on my podcast again. It's meant a lot to me. I couldn't wait to talk to you again. I plan on not calling you every six months to do a podcast, so don't worry about that. Uh, that's all right. <laughs> I mean, it's you You do a nice job, Jake. I mean, this is not, uh, it, you know, initially when you asked me a couple times ago, there, for me, there's always a bit of trepidation. One, because I'm never quite sure why people want to listen to what I have to say. Uh, but two, uh, I'm always a little bit nervous about going over. I don't mind going over things. Right. But I don't want everything to be like I've done some in the past where, you know, people have their own specific point they want. Right. You know, what nozzle choice, what hose choice, all those things. I can have those conversations, but, uh, but in the podcast format, I'm not super interested in those conversations because we can't go out and prove it. But I think you do a nice job with keeping it target specific, but also, I mean, the, the easiest way to summarize is you do a nice job and it's my pleasure and if you want to do one again, that's that's fine, uh, because they're adult conversations. Brother, I appreciate that. That means a lot to me. Yeah, we're not we're not collecting, um, you know, fire brands or you know, <laughs> or t-shirts. We're actually talking about real, real things, and uh, and I think openly and honestly, which I also appreciate. Well, now you're getting ready to do um, the weekly scrap with Corley Moore, aren't you? Another podcast? Yes. You yep. will absolutely love that. He is an excellent podcaster, a great guy. I mean, just you'll you'll really enjoy that. Absolutely. He's one of my favorite podcasters. Oh, that's great to hear. He's yeah. a really nice guy. Oh, super nice guy. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I usually, every Monday when I go to the gym, I'm listening to the weekly scrap before. So yeah, enjoy. I, I got to give him a date. That's what we're, we're setting right now. You'll enjoy it. And thanks again, brother. No problem. 
Today's podcast was sponsored by Fire Facilities, designers and manufacturers of realistic, built-to-last training structures and mobile units for 30 years. Make training count. Visit firefacilities.com for more information.